Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to today's episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Rick? I am doing wonderful, Sarah. It looks like you are working from campus today. I am. I actually put pants on and battled Omaha traffic to come to campus this morning. <laughs> that means we aren't going to see the cat. No, no cat today. Oh, man. She's at home. She's probably fighting with my dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cats and dogs living together. Yes. What's the world yeah. coming to? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, we have to be inclusive, right? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so today we wanted to do an episode on kind of a relevant topic, specifically in the state of Nebraska right now, and I'm sure it is nationwide as well. But we are seeing um, drastically rising cases of RSV. So we have a lovely panel of guests with us today to talk about all things RSV. Outstanding. So two S's today, right? We have snow and a special episode. So that makes it even better. Yes. No Terrific. Snow, though. That no was snow. yucky this morning. <laughs> it doesn't even <laughs> stick. <laughs> there was there was some at my house that was there was about a quarter of an inch at my house. Well I guess you live you live east of us, so we didn't get I much do. of anything here. So yeah. Well, great. Um, well, um, we have some of my our colleagues here today. Um, I'll let them introduce themselves real quickly um, so that uh, everybody knows who's with us. We have a small panel and we appreciate all of them joining us. Sure. I'm Andrea Green-Hines. I am a MedPeds ID physician at Children's and UNMC. I'm Alice Sato. I am in pediatric infectious disease. So I'm the one of the three of us that only does children. And I am the hospital epidemiologist for Children's Hospital and Medical Center. Yes, I'm uh, Carrie Neiman. I am another MedPeds infectious disease doc here at Children's at UNMC and a medical advisor to the Douglas County Health Department. Very good. Thank you all for joining us. Yeah, a couple questions real quick is, is MedPeds. Uh, you guys, we haven't really talked too much about MedPeds and how do you specialize in something like infectious disease and med peds? Uh, can one of you guys tell us a little bit about what that's like and how you keep up to date and boarded and all of that? <laughs> sure. So um, med peds. Uh, so we do a four year residency in both internal medicine and pediatrics. Um, and so at the end of residency, we board certify in internal medicine and then in pediatrics. So um, and then from there, Carrie and I went on to do a MedPeds ID fellowship, so a combined fellowship. Um, so overall, we did two years of pediatric ID fellowship and two years of adult ID fellowship, and then board certified in both adult ID and pediatric ID following um, completion of that fellowship. Um, so we currently have um, four boards that we're certified in, and um, <laughs> luckily, uh, maintenance of those boards is uh, paid by our employers, 
Um, and so it, it is a bit uh, tasking for time, but we've chosen, Carrie and I chose to do the uh, longitudinal knowledge assessments instead of sitting for the actual boards. Um, so we just get to take quizzes, uh, quarterly quizzes, uh, which seems much more doable than uh, sitting for the boards every 10 years. Um, so, um, so we keep up to date, uh, just seeing patients, honestly, and, and that always keeps us on our toes. And, and uh, we learn something from patients every day and, and do literature uh, searches just through our clinical work and our research. Um, and yeah, our brains are constantly on and learning. It's, it's great. That is very cool. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you guys do that. It's uh, your your employers might pay for your tests, but they don't actually study or take them for you or or any of that stuff. So that's I just finished boards for the third time this year, and so uh, I figure ten more years. I don't. <laughs> we'll see where we're at in another decade. But good for you guys. That's awesome. Thanks for joining us. And we train people to follow in their footsteps. So Andrea runs our fellowship. And we take MedPeds people to train in infectious disease as well. Yeah, so we have, um, uh, besides Carrie and I, we have another faculty member that's uh, MedPeds uh, board certified. And then um, our current fellow is uh, Clayton Maurer, who's um, completing the PEDS portion of his MedPeds ID fellowship. So, um, yeah. Outstanding. That's that's so cool. I think that's a idea is so broad. Medicine and peds are so broad, and to combine them into uh, one training thing that I guess that was that eight years. That's that is crazy. <laughs> but great yeah, we for were you told guys. we were crazy quite often, um, <laughs> quite often. So it's good to. Um, I feel like we're validated when we uh, have uh, other colleagues and now fellows that have uh, chosen the same path. So I know, and I joke, and I may have mentioned this on the last podcast I was on, but uh, in fellowship, people would say, you're doing eight years after med school, you could have been a neurosurgeon. I said, well, then I'd have to be a neurosurgeon. I <laughs> want to be a neurosurgeon. <laughs> right. <laughs> I get to sleep in my own bed every night. It's wonderful. <laughs> so let's start talking about RSV. Um, I'd like to start with um, just kind of the basics of what RSV is. Um, Atlas, do you want to start with this one? Uh, so RSV stands for respiratory syncytial virus. Uh, it is usually uh, a seasonal virus. We are classically used to thinking of RSV season as part of the fall, winter, early spring uh, respiratory viral seasons when other viruses are going around. So usually we think starting maybe later October, November, and running until about March, maybe the very end of March for our prime season. And as pediatricians, we get very used to seeing children coming in especially the youngest children will uh, become symptomatic with this infection. So runny noses, but then they can develop uh, wheezing and uh, viral pneumonia and otitis uh, due to the viral infection. So ear infections, uh, and uh, they can have uh, quite a lot of difficulty with breathing, 
both because uh, small babies do a lot of their breathing through their nose and that it gets all stuffed up, but also because their airways are very small. And I never remember whether it's the radius to the third power or the fourth power for um, airway resistance, but uh, just a little bit of swelling um, or extra mucus in those airways can really lead to uh, a very large increase in the amount of resistance in those airways. And it can make it very hard for them to get air in and out. So we can see air trapping as well. Um, sort of like in asthma where you see a lot of air trapping, uh, it mostly involves the bronchioles. So we talk about bronchiolitis as the main disease uh, form that we see with the infection uh, that causes children to have trouble. So if they have underlying lung or heart disease, those children are really at the highest risk as well. So uh, we worry about, about um, babies who are born prematurely, babies with congenital heart disease, um, and certain children with other chronic lung diseases uh, like uh, infants who are already impacted by having cystic fibrosis, those um, with evidence of lung or nutritional changes already, those children can really be at high risk. Usually it starts with kind of a runny nose uh, and then uh, it might get worse over the next few days. Uh, as a former pediatric hospitalist, I usually, you know, keep in mind kind of, it tends to be worse around day four to five. So if I'm seeing a baby who's having trouble on day one or two, I was always much more inclined to go ahead and bring them in to the hospital for uh, respiratory support than a child who might be day four or five and is maybe just getting tiny bit better than they were yesterday. And, you know, if they could follow up with their doctor the next day and they had a family who felt comfortable taking care of them and they were eating okay, right, then they might not need to be in the hospital for that. So, um, you know, there's a little bit of judgment there. The other thing that can happen with babies um, is that they can present with apnea or not breathing as uh, even before they develop respiratory symptoms. And again, the youngest babies whose maybe central control of their breathing isn't as well developed uh, are more likely to present that way. So the family could come in with a story of a very scary thing that happened at home because the baby wasn't breathing. Um, and so sometimes we look and see if those children have RSV. Now, because they're little, we also look for <laughs> serious bacterial infections and you know other serious things that might be going on with them. But um, RSV definitely is a big cause of uh, apnea in little babies. Thanks, Alice. That was awesome. Now, I think uh, Carrie is busy, so Andrea gets our, our next question. So um, we talked, uh, you know, through with Alice, and you know, young children are certainly at high risk, but there's other groups that are at risk for RSV disease uh, as well. So, and I, as being one of our adult ID docs and, and special populations that you work with, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So. Um... In so Carrie and I both uh, see oncology ID patients, so we're part of the oncology ID service, and so um, those patients, so severely immunocompromised patients, are certainly at risk for complications from RSV, um, even the adult um, immunocompromised population, and so um, it's not uncommon to see. Um, a bone marrow transplant patient get admitted with RSV pneumonia, um, which uh, typically would not impact a otherwise uh, healthy adult. 
And then we're just seeing some disease in just elderly as well, right? So the, that can be a risk factor without even being necessarily immune compromised. Right, that kind of relatively immunocompromised state as well. Absolutely. Is so there... oh, go, ahead. go ahead, go ahead, Sarah. Oh, I was just going to ask, is there a vaccine for RSV? Almost. <laughs> Almost. Almost, yeah. That's Very a great close. question for Alice. <laughs> so, Alice is our vaccinologist. Uh, I am super excitable about vaccines, but that you were already aware of from a previous discussion we had on this podcast about vaccines. So RSV... Um, has a rocky history with vaccines um, going back to the 1960s. So in the 1960s, there was um, studies done on a formalin inactivated um, whole virus vaccine uh, that unfortunately made things worse for babies who had not previously been infected. So if you look epidemiologically, um, almost every child gets infected at least once with RSV by the time they hit even one to two years old, definitely by age three. Um, it goes around once you've been infected, it really doesn't protect you. They've done studies in adults where they've serially infected people with the exact same strain because we just don't make sterilizing immunity to it. Uh, so, um, what happened was uh, that infants who had never been infected before, so they had no prior immunity prior to getting this vaccine, developed an immune response that actually made their disease more severe at the time of their first infection. So they were more likely to develop a viral pneumonia and there were two deaths in that um, population. Um, and it was a very small number of children. So no one has wanted to go near making a vaccine for this disease because of that concern. What um, it did show, however, was that people who had been infected before, they did okay, right? And it was more protective. So there's still been interest in providing a way to prevent infection and severe disease. Um, in the late 90s, what we added was passive immunity by using first something called Resvigam, which was RSV immunoglobulin um, that required, you know, coming in and getting an IV and we'd bring the children into like an infusion center and we'd place an IV and give it to them over four hours and that was monthly. Um, and then we developed a monoclonal, which I usually say synergist because I always feel self-conscious about saying uh, pavaluzumab, um, which is a monoclonal. So now people are all very comfortable with the idea of monoclonals, right? So. Uh, that was given as sort of a pre-exposure uh, prophylaxis and a monoclonal antibody. And we give that during RSV season um, to prevent uh, serious disease in children. Uh, and that monoclonal helps. Um, there have been some other attempted um, antibodies. So that was maybe 50 fold more protective than the um, Respigam that we were using or the in the IV version. Um, and they have found that there are other, there have been testing of other monoclonals, but um, one that Regeneron made very rapidly, there were resistance uh, mutants, so they didn't roll that one out. So they've been looking at ways to do that, maybe fewer shots, you know, can we make a monoclonal that lasts longer, things like that. However, um, 
what has moved forward is the idea of making a vaccine for pregnant women. So antibodies cross the placenta from the mom to the baby pretty much in that third trimester. And so if you can immunize moms, then, then there would be transfer of antibody across the placenta to the baby, and then that would protect them for those vital first few months of life when they're at highest risk. The downside to that is that your premature babies still don't get as much immunoglobulin transfer. So the babies you most want to protect who are less than 36 weeks, who are less than 32 weeks, right, gestation, will have less antibody transfer from mom already. So um, it is um, a great move forward. We're very excited about the idea of vaccinating moms, but it's not going to remove the need for other approaches for those premature babies because they won't get the same protection from mom. But it does look like it's very effective and very safe um, for the babies whose moms were vaccinated, you know, enough time in advance for them to get some transfer across. Um, so uh, that is hopefully coming soon-ish and can be <laughs> added to the things that we vaccinate moms for that not only protect mom, but also protect the baby. Uh, so we do that with flu, we do that with pertussis, right, where we really recommend that uh, pregnant persons get vaccinated uh, and that protects them and also the baby. So we're looking forward to having that vaccine. I don't think it's you know the be all and end all. What has changed in terms of vaccine approach is that there's been more of an appreciation in maybe the last 15 years for the fusion protein. So if you're used to thinking about viruses, they tend to have a fusion protein and a binding protein, right? And then so you bind with the one and then the other one changes conformation and then you get insertion of that fusion protein into the membrane to let the membranes fuse with each other in the viral um, genomic data to get inside the cell and infect it. So there's a pre-fusion form of the F protein and a post-fusion form. And so if some of the um, epitopes are, are maintained, but not all of them, and the pre-fusion form is probably what you want. So um, they're looking at doing sort of a bivalent, because there are two strains, there's RSVA and RSVB, um, vaccine that would have both of those things. So that is uh, an approach people are, are looking at. Um, and they've been focusing on trying to induce sort of more broadly protective uh, antibodies. So here's hoping. <laughs> now, RSV is also an RNA virus, and we're all kind of familiar with COVID and variants and changes and everything else, and influenza does the same thing. How much does RSV change year to year? Does it have some different evolution, or, or um, is it uh, pretty, pretty much the same? I, I, it, fortunately, it doesn't change a whole lot. But it does change some, which is why, you know, like that one product that they tried, there was selection for resistance. So it can happen. It doesn't happen at the same rate that we see, you know, mutations in COVID spike or GP120 of HIV or some of these other viruses um, where we see really rapid changes. But there's enough there that, you know, we, we can't. We, we have to think about it, at least. 
Interesting. There's also um, um, some experimental uh, vaccines uh, that they're looking at for adults as well. And there is a trial at um, UNMC that is enrolling adults over the age of 60 um, that we can put a post up in the chat on uh, on our platform so that if people are interested or know somebody who might be interested, enrollment is ending soon. So if somebody wants to see if they can get protection from RSV and contribute to the advancement of science, we would love to have you come on down and 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 sign up and see see where it goes. Um, all right, so talk to treatment. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about something for prophylaxis. Um, uh, well, let's go back for a second. So, who would be a candidate for prophylaxis? You, you mentioned a monoclonal antibody that's available in the U.S., and I think there's another one that's being studied as well. Um, maybe Andrea can comment on that a little bit. Yeah, so the current uh, monoclonal antibody that's available is uh, Pelivizumab, and I've only become um, proficient at saying that because of my stewardship role. <laughs> it's part of our stewardship program is to steward the use of uh, Pelivizumab, but it took me many, many years, Alice, to be able to say it, and you did wonderful, by the way. <laughs> Uh, so um, the American Academy of Pediatrics has uh, published guidelines on uh, who um, would potentially benefit from uh, administration of pelvizumab. Um, and so this is a monthly um, injection that is given to um, high-risk infants. Um, and so um, I just pulled the guidelines up. Um, uh, and so they, they update these um, often, but essentially it's the extreme uh, premature infants, um, those with um, hemodynamic uh, significant congenital heart disease, chronic lung disease, um, sometimes patients who have uh, neuromuscular disease, so um, aren't able to clear their uh, airway um, efficiently, um, uh, immunocompromised children. Um, and so really, we're trying to keep these infants um, out of the hospital. So um, trying to prevent severe disease in these infants, um, they still may be getting infected, but hopefully um, uh, we're able to prevent, um, and studies have shown um, that it's able to prevent at least hospitalization in some of these populations. Is there, how long do you give it for some of these really young children? Is it to a certain age or a certain mature point? Is there a, is there a, a end point for that? Yes. So typically it's just within the first year of life. Um, I think for uh, the immunocompromised children, I'd have to go back here, um, but I think it's in the, the first two years uh, of life. Okay. So it doesn't matter what age they're born at, so they don't have to reach a certain weight or anything like that. It's actually uh, Essentially, based on if, if they qualify at the beginning of uh, RSV season, then they get it, they get it throughout the, the whole season. So traditionally, um, and uh, Alice kind of alluded to this earlier, traditionally our RSV season started November 1st. Um, obviously, there's no magic cutoff where no one's infected before November 1st. And um, and then it kind of ended in the March. And again, no magic number uh, or magic date. But that's kind of when the, the majority of cases had subsided. Um, so then they would re receive their monthly pelvizumab um, throughout RSV season. So if they qualified um, at the beginning of RSV season, then they would continue to receive it throughout the season. Okay. 
And we'll talk about RSV season here in a minute again, uh, because I think that that's kind of a little bit of a misnomer here lately. Um, what about the new drug that's still under study? Any, anybody know anything about that? Somebody uh, I'd had a question about that, uh, you know, I don't know, a week or two ago. I think there was a publication recently or somebody talked about it. So uh, a new drug, a new monoclonal antibody. Um, the new monoclonal on the block, hopefully, that will offer protection for preterm babies um, and term infants with just a one-time injection. Um, the Melody study, I think, enrolled infants 35 weeks of gestation and beyond. Um, and compared to placebo, I think the efficacy was around 76% um, for medically attended um, RSV um, lower respiratory tract infection with hospitalization or uh, severe disease requiring ICU. And so looks like um, that is going to be a, a great opportunity for our infants going forward to hopefully prevent this along with the new maternal RSV vaccine that we're hoping for as well. So if we ever get back to actually a traditional RSV season, you could give one dose and, and take care of the whole season. That That is the goal. Has this been submitted to the FDA as far as you know? Um, I think it's approved already in Europe, and I believe it's being submitted to the FDA. Yeah, that's what I understood as well. Thank you. Very cool. So um, focused a lot on what RSV is and kind of some of the prevention things that we can do for especially the high-risk infants. Um, and then the, uh, some trials that may be ongoing for adults and whatnot. Treatment for RSV has been a little bit uh, shaky in terms of finding things that are efficacious. Um, what can you guys comment on that? Maybe for children and then maybe a different population would be our very immune suppressed people because I think they're approached a little differently. So when residents ask me how you treat bronchiolitis, I ask them what year it is because it feels like it goes through a rotation of what people think works best. Uh, and so at various times in my career, uh, people were, you know, very much into giving nebulized treatments like albuterol, and then that's no good. Uh, everybody should get hypertonic saline. Uh, no, that's no good. Well, maybe you should give a trial for family history of asthma, and maybe if, then if the albuterol is helping, then that's helping, and then not if it's not. Uh, one of the main things we actually do for children, even when they're in the hospital, is clean out their nose with good suction, like really deep suctioning their airway and giving them a chance to breathe. So what I counsel families or used to counsel families about um, was that you don't want to be sticking the nasal bulb in their nose so much that the nose itself swells from trauma. Because if you, you know, like if you keep poking your hand over and over again, eventually you're going to get a little swelling there from the trauma. So you don't want to be in digging there so much, especially when nothing's coming out, because if it's just swollen, causing congestion, and you're not getting out lots of goo, you don't really want to do that. So, um, you know, we squirt a little nasal saline up there, um, you know, or you can buy it over the counter as a little spray, and uh, then it'll make them sneeze a bunch, or you can get some of that out. Some uh, very dedicated parents use these suction devices that you use your mouth on the tube to suck out from your child's nose. Um, 
but that actually is very helpful in terms of keeping their airway clear uh, enough for them uh, to breathe comfortably, uh, always for uh, these sorts of breathing states, if they are calmer, um, then their breathing is less turbulent. So actually anything that calms them is usually helpful. Sometimes they need pacing when you're feeding them because they need to catch their breath. So you just have to, you know, know that, you know, maybe you should give them a little moment in the middle of feeding so that they are still able to feed well, but they might need a break. So this is just the sort of supportive stuff we do. And then obviously if children end up needing oxygen, we give them oxygen. Um, sometimes they need a little bit of flow. Uh, sometimes they just need blow by or some other um, oxygen uh, situation, but some children can get very, very sick. Uh, and so uh, they can end up uh, needing ICU care to help them with their breathing. So it sounds like for most children, it's symptomatic care and then, um, you know, supportive care, oxygen, et cetera, if they need it. So no specific antiviral that you have that you try for most of the children. Yeah, we really don't. I remember one night as a, I used to be an overnight hospitalist before I went into infectious disease and I came down to the ER and they're like, great, the specialists here so they can give us the magic drug for RSV. And I thought, I would not be working at midnight if I had the magic drug for RSV. <laughs> I would be, you know, kicking back in my mansion and having, you know, a nice drink. Um, <laughs> so we really don't have a really good antiviral for it. We have tried um, ones in the past, but they're really not beneficial to these babies. So um, unfortunately, we don't have a good drug for that. Yeah. Occasionally, they need like a little steroids for airway swelling, uh, and so sometimes we'll do that. But it's really mostly supportive and making sure you know they're also well hydrated. Uh, so ha I always say half your circulation, you know, half your breathing is your circulation. So if you're dehydrated, you know, it's still harder to get all those little trucks of oxygen, red blood cells around. So making sure that they're staying well hydrated um, also helps them uh, to get their oxygen delivery to be good. Ellis, I had to come in on your gentle suctioning comment. Um, so you, I'm just gonna say the, the brand name. So the Nose Frida has done wonders um, for our family uh, during the respiratory season. So the Nose Frida is the home suctioning device, which uh, most parents have loved uh, to use. I know I, I loved it. Um, so you're actually providing suction to a tube that goes in uh, gently inside of your infant's nose. Um, but uh, I probably got too aggressive with <laughs> <laughs> trying to get all the mucus out of my, I had a, so all of my babies were born during respiratory season, all four of my uh, babes. So um, it was put to good use. But yeah, I think uh, probably no one cautioned me uh, to, to go uh, gently. Uh, it's all relative, right? But uh, yeah, I was pretty aggressive suctioner uh, for my poor babes. <laughs> well, good information. Thank you. Um, anything different with um, adults or transplant patients with RSV? Yeah, so I think more of the same. I would say uh, ribavirin as the antiviral agent for RSV has um, kind of mixed study results in terms of um, uh, efficacy. Um, there's obviously in the oncology ID population, there's always the risks 
uh, with systemic administration of ribavirin uh, with uh, cytopenias. Um, and it's something we always need to consider, especially in our bone marrow transplant population, um, if we're ever considering a systemic administration of ribavirin. Um, and so I think that, you know, consensus is, it, there is not really a great consensus right now of should we be treating um, these RSV pneumonia uh, uh, patients uh, in the immunocompromised population with ribavirin. Um, I, I can't say that that we haven't in the past, um, and I think it's just kind of a case-by-case -case, uh, basis, but I, I would say there's no real consistency based on um, the studies to date in terms of practice of what, if, you know, any sort of standardized practice. And looking at the monoclonal antibodies, those have just been for prophylaxis, right? They, I think they've tried them for therapy and they really haven't shown any benefit. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. So we had kind of hinted before when um, respiratory illness season was, but this year seems to be very unique, right? So it looks and like last year. this year and last year, um, it looks like this season is starting earlier. And, yes, for um, sure. And case numbers are uh, increasing rapidly right now. Um, so Alice, um, do you want to speak on what you're seeing? <laughs> so with everything else that happened at the very beginning, go let's go back to March 2020, that was sort of already towards the end of uh, normal RSV season for us, and it was approaching the end of flu season. But if you looked at uh, the data on respiratory viral testing, when everybody got sent home, right, all those viruses, just the number of cases just crashed down to nearly nothing. Um, and those seasons kind of ended. And then we didn't see much until um, August, so I have to think, August 2021, we had a very large spike of RSV uh, that started very rapidly and went up very high um, and then came down. And that caught us a little bit by surprise. We did have warning from Australia, especially um, New South Wales had shared uh, data when they had seen that. And uh, so we were aware that that had happened there because they have winter when we have summer. So we were given the alert that that could happen. And so we were on the lookout for it. And then when it happened, we had to change our strategy for prophylaxis among other things, because we don't usually start, like Andrea said, we don't usually start till like November and you only usually give five doses. So the, one of the questions was early on with this new epidemiology was, well, if we give it now, what is gonna happen when we get to February? <laughs> we, you know, we're no longer giving doses. What will happen then? Because we had no idea what was gonna happen um, and whether that was gonna be a wave of one and not the wave of both. And so it was very unclear what to do. And then this year we had our eyes open watching for it, you know, and it didn't happen in August, but then September hit. And then we said, oh, we're definitely seeing a rise. And so we saw a very rapid rise. And so again, we had to go back to um, making our plan be different than it would have normally been in terms of getting 
the monoclonal out to children sooner, <laughs> right? And we're semi-assuming it's going to look like last time where it goes way up and comes way down. So you've probably heard on the news there have been tons of children with respiratory symptoms in pediatrician and family practice offices, in urgent cares, in emergency rooms, and in the hospital. And in fact, we have been tracking our admissions and up to a third of the patients in our hospital um, in the last few weeks have had some respiratory virus, almost all of which right now is RSV. And we had double digit numbers of children in our ICU with RSV, almost all of whom's ages are measured in weeks to months, right? So we do have a few older children who might incidentally have RSV um, or have RSV and be symptomatic. We certainly have those, but we have had double digit respiratory RSV pneumonias and such in our ICU for the past few weeks. And it's not just us, right? It's not just Nebraska. It's really the whole U.S. is seeing this. And so the state set up, you know, a resource meeting and then region seven, which includes um, Kansas, Iowa, Missouri, and Nebraska has been having weekly meetings uh, to share resources, to talk about transport, to talk about how to manage beds um, and to look at shortages of um, medications, right? And, and all that. And it is largely driven right now by RSV. We have, when we continue to have children in our ICU with COVID, but what is really causing us to be heavily burdened by patients right now is definitely RSV. We might be seeing a little downtrend, hopefully, finally. Um, so we're hoping that it goes down because flu is on the rise and COVID maybe is on the rise. Um, so we're really hoping that this RSV wave will end, right? And that we won't have, you know, what people talk about twindemics and tridemics and all that. What we're, we're hoping that, you know, we will get some recovery from the RSV part um, before, you know, we really get into the midst of flu and COVID, which I will just say you can get vaccinated for both of those things and should right now would be a great time. Go get vaccinated. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, <laughs> and wash your hands. Yes. Hand hygiene all the time. Um, Andrea, are you seeing anything different in adults? Um, I don't, I just checked in with our oncology ID team actually, um, about RSV and the impact. I haven't been on service, um, for a couple of months, uh, there. Uh, so they luckily aren't, um, having many cases that are being admitted at least. Um, but that's probably because the oncology population is, uh, pretty good at, uh, isolating, um, uh, inherently isolating. So, um, they're probably being uh, very careful, especially during respiratory season, um, at protecting themselves, um, isolating from, um, especially those uh, with any respiratory symptoms right now. Yeah, that, I agree. It can be a little different than it can be with a six-week-old or something. Um, what advice do you give parents during this time? And you know, and when when do they need to seek care? When do they need to get a test? Uh, those kinds of situations. 
Yeah. So, I mean, in general, you know, we want to encourage families to enjoy their baby. And um, it's a balance of being, um, you know, taking appropriate precautions, but also just enjoying this really precious time in in their lives. So hand hygiene, that's really what a lot of it comes down to, um, keeping those who are sick away from their child, um, really, um, uh, you know, if they have symptoms themselves, um, you know, wearing a mask when they're with the infant. Um, but yeah, just try, you know, enjoy this time. I, I know being a new parent is, is incredibly nerve wracking. Um, uh, you're, you're overwhelmed, you're sleep deprived. Um, and, and so just, uh, you know, again, enjoying the time, um, uh, being able to share uh, the infant with those uh, who are close to you is is important, of course. Um, but making sure that those who gather around the infant are um, are healthy and and not having symptoms, and use really good hand hygiene. With all my infants, newborns, uh, there was hand sanitizer everywhere. So um, I certainly was not shy about asking everyone uh, to to wash their hands or use um, hand sanitizer before they. Um, touched my child or, or held my, my child. So this is an infection prevention podcast at some level. So perhaps we could talk about what's super controversial on social media about what's been said about RSV. Cause I think most people don't know what the isolation precautions are for RSV. Yeah. Fire away. So the Red Book, which is the American Academy of Pediatric Infectious Disease book, um, and I believe the HICPAC guidelines also both just say contact. And if you have followed any social media discussions about COVID is airborne and how that, um, you know, sort of slowly rolled out that the appreciation for, you know, the um, near aerosols and COVID transmission, uh, when it was advised with the spike in RSV cases that people pay attention to hand hygiene, there was the, oh my God, why are you not talking about masks and aerosols and all this? Respiratory is right there in the name of this virus. So what's the data for this? So Caroline Breeze Hall is very famous for having done these studies in the 80s. Um, and it's uh, either called the Cuddler study or the Sitter study. Um, and what they did was they had people in rooms with um, children with RSV, and they looked to see who got infected using different approaches. So one was um, people who just took care of the children, the cuddlers. So they did all the normal stuff for a few hours. They fed them, they held them, they blew raspberries at them, whatever you wanted to, you know, whatever they were doing, right? Um, so that they were really sharing space with those infants. Um, I think they were wearing gowns, but um, other than that, they were like in their space. The sitters uh, were a group of people who were gowned and they sat and read their book. The only thing they were allowed to touch was their book. So they're unmasked in the room. So they are breathing the air that is shared with the child in the room, but they are across the room, not touching anything. And then the people who really should get medals I feel like are the touchers and they were sent in when the child had been in the room and left the room and they went around and touched things and then touched their eyes and nose. 
because prior studies had shown that the mouth wasn't really um, a site that infection happens um, with fomites with this disease, but the eyes and nose are. So they deliberately touch their eyes and nose after touching a bunch of surfaces in the room. I, I mean, they at got least cookies is, after that. <laughs> it's at least <laughs> pre-MRSA and pre-CRE and all that. But I mean, those are some very brave people. Um, and so uh, there had actually been studies um, that this group had done before looking at transmission. And they had talked at one point about wearing like nose goggles which to me sounds like a scuba mask that covered the nose and the eyes, but not the mouth, because the mouth was not felt to be a way in which you got infected. So uh, the people who touched everything and then touched their eyes and nose, they got infected. The people who were doing normal cuddler care got infected, but the people sitting in the room, not touching anything but their book did not get infected. So that's why um, the recommendation is contact although lots of places will do contact droplets uh, on the theory that it's also in droplets is where that cuddler um, exposure additionally comes in. Um, so uh, uh, it has been studied. Uh, it does not seem to be aerosol. When they did other studies collecting um, air samples uh, in filters from different rooms in patients with RSV of different ages, uh, they also did not think that there was lots of infectious virus found in aerosols from these rooms. So it has actually been studied. Um, uh, I Right now, since everybody is kind of on droplet in the sense that we're masking in clinical care areas, it's sort of already that. But the contact part is actually really important. Uh, so uh, hand hygiene is, in fact, really important for this disease. And that's why things like uh, the CDC director's tweet emphasize hand hygiene. It's um, not actually um, that you would be more likely to get infected if you're not wearing a mask. Although I would say that if you turn out to be infected, right, that's going to catch your droplets as source control. I still think masking is important for breaking the transmission cycle. Because if you look inside households, everybody gets it in a household. If one person gets it, it's it, your... Um, secondary case rate is extremely high in households um, because you're sharing lots of things. Um, but that contact um, part is an important, a very important part for RSV specifically. So Alice, you're saying that I shouldn't have let my one-year-old share my cereal this morning. No, your mouth is okay. <laughs> oh, no, it's oh, not. Okay. I'm a dental person. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> for Sorry, RSV. Oh, for I just RSV. the whole like yeah, the whole lesson there clearly failed the lesson. Okay. Okay. Well, I know we're coming up to the top of the hour. Is there anything else that you guys would like to highlight about RSV? Anything we might have missed? Oh, it's nice to talk about a different virus for a little while. I know it's been COVID for like three years, pretty much. Right. I mean, I remember when we started, we started planning for it to get here in December of 2019 um, because we knew that it was, you know, we knew that it existed. I don't even think it had, it didn't, it had a different name at that point in time. I remember what we started calling it at first, <laughs> but uh, novel coronavirus. 
that's what it was. I think that's, that's right. And then they came up with the COVID-19 and then people thought it was the 19th version of it. So, (laughs) Um, but it is nice. That was the second week of February, 2020, if you would like to know when. Is that when the name came out? was attached to the disease and SARS-CoV-2 was attached to the virus. I just know we had a bunch of meetings. I had to update slides between one talk and a second talk. So I know exactly when that was. (laughs) Isn't that painful? Or when the CDC, you know, updates things, everything changes and you just like finish a talk and you're right getting ready to do something and the whole thing changes and you're like, oh my gosh, I got to go back and change half my slides now. (laughs) That is very frustrating. Although I am glad the CDC keeps up on things and uses evidence-based information for the guidance so yeah it wasn't meant to be a complaint at the cdc it just messes up (laughs) my whole mojo on my slide (laughs) very good well thank you so much for joining us today we really appreciate y'all's time thanks for having us we'll have to do it again Uh, we'll see what uh next a great thing happens and we'll hit you guys up but thank you so much for joining us Yeah, and for all of our listeners out there, don't forget to join in the conversation on Twitter at dirty underscore drinks, and we will catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode. If you enjoyed this content, please share it with your friends. And don't forget to be a part of the conversation by following us at dirty underscore drinks on Twitter. If you would like to share your story, reach out to us through Twitter to become a guest on future episodes. We would love to meet you. Have a great week and make sure to get your fill of dirty drinks.